Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Views on View podcast. This week on our panel, we have Chris Fritz from the View Core team. Hello. We have Eric Hanchett, author of Vue.js in Action. Hello, hello. And John Papa, web developer and open source contributor at Microsoft, formerly with Disney. Hope everybody's having a good day. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Maria Lamardo. Hello, everyone. If you want to give us just a brief introduction, Chris seems to know everybody, and so he's like, oh, yeah, it's Maria. But uh, <laughs> for, for people who aren't Chris, uh, who are you? Sure. So my name is Maria Lamardo. I am originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and I currently live in North Carolina. I am actually a board-certified assistant behavior analyst. So I have eight years of experience in providing behavioral therapy for children with developmental disabilities. And I actually moved into development last year. And I am now a software engineer at Nutanix, which is an enterprise cloud operating um, software company. And I'm also the North Carolina chapter leader for Vixens and the founder of Developers at RTP, which is a local group of developers who share passion and learning. Cool. I think uh, Marie needs to get some more hobbies. <laughs> she really just isn't coming up to Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, her hobby sounds like it's helping people and helping people <laughs> and helping people. Hey, I enjoy it. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's terrific. So yeah, so we were talking a little bit about accessibility before the show. And it's it's interesting because every time we do a show on accessibility on any of the shows, everybody has kind of a little bit different approach to it and take on, okay, this is what's important. This is what it means. For a lot of developers, when they hear accessibility, it's this big, huge pie in the sky thing. And it's like, you know, it, it's almost unapproachable. So when we're talking about accessibility with you, what are we talking about? I mean, where are you going to lead us and what kinds of things are we going to be talking about here? Well, I really want to emphasize that um, accessibility is just making the web accessible to everyone, regardless of, you know, their abilities or location and things like that. So I have a lot of experience working with people with developmental disabilities. And while I was in the field, we had, we struggled a lot, not only on finding devices that worked for us, but applications were really hard to find. And I worked a lot with um, people under the spectrum and even things like, you know, too much animations would set off certain behaviors. So it, it's not just about, you know, including alt text your images. It's a lot more than that. Even sounds can trigger some unwanted behaviors for, for some people. And we just want to make sure that we're aware of that as we're creating our apps. Do you think some industries should care about it more than others? I mean, honestly, I think everyone should care just the same. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that making your tools and everything uh, accessible, actually, like, it doesn't only improve, like, usability and potential use across all situations, but it really creates a positive image for the company as a whole. And, you know, it really expands the potential market share of that company. So when you're talking about accessibility, you're speaking even more broadly than people who might have problems specific to like one of the senses, like, you know, some kind of difference in ability in vision or hearing or something like that. But, but even just like in how our brain process different things. And you mentioned animations as, as one of those things. Uh, and some people having a really hard time like processing web pages with animations. I, I can actually say I'm one of these people 
if there's a lot of animation and, and actually when there's like a GIF somewhere that I can't turn off, I just have to close the page because I can't see anything else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you mentioned like the types of disabilities even. So yes, we're looking for um, auditory, cognitive, motor, and visual, but then, you know, cognitive really has a lot of, that covers a lot of things and that animation aspect is one of them. And then, you know, making sure that even like, Yes, we talk about like auditory, like making sure that we can use screen readers and stuff like that. And this isn't used as much now, but even having music play on your app. And that's more typical in like little games and things like that, or like websites for little kids that have just music playing like as loud as possible when you first open it. And that can be overwhelming for a lot of users. So you just have to think about that as well. It's interesting too, though. I mean, there are two points that I want to bring up. One is is that there are some of the more obvious disabilities that people have, you know, where they can't, you know, use a keyboard the way that most people do, or they can't interact with the machine in one way or another. But then there, you know, we're talking about some of these other ones and bring somebody in, and there's just no way to to look at them and know that they need something different from, you know, what I need. And so, for example, um, I have a daughter that we're, we're actually going to get her tested for dyslexia, right? That'll affect the way that she uses the web page. But the flip side of that is, is that she can sit down at the machine. She can use the keyboard and mouse, you know, with two hands, the way most people are going to be able to do it. And then for her, the, the cognitive problems are going to come in with the way that the page is laid out and things like that. Yeah. And then also for that, you have to think about like, even like the size of the text and how many words you're putting in a paragraph and things like that. So that, you know, it's not overwhelming for all the users. So yes, there's a lot of disabilities and and not all of them are permanent. I think this is one way to kind of have um, developers relate a little bit more, say that you break your hands, you know, God forbid, but um, then you have to wear a cast. Like, how are you going to access your applications like that? So I would say just also try it, like try to imagine what it would be like to, like you say, like only be able to use um, keyboard to access a site or even turn off your monitor and, and turn on the screen reader, see what that's like. And then make sure that, you know, maybe not 100%, but you should be able to navigate to at least the most important pieces of your site, especially the shopping carts. <laughs> I worked contract with, he, he's actually a good friend of mine, but I worked a contract with a developer that, uh, I'll spare you all the gory details, but we went through a really, really, really long meeting. And at the end of the meeting, he was so ticked off that he packed his guns into his car. He printed off pictures of the faces of the people who had made the meeting go extra long, drove out to the, you know, the area that he likes to go shooting in, set up the targets. And he was so distraught and upset about the whole situation that when he got out of his car, he tripped and fell. And uh, what he didn't realize until after he had done all the shooting and then packed everything up and come back home was that he had broken his elbow when he got out of the car and fell down before he, (laughs) you know, (laughs) before he did any of that stuff. And so uh, the next day at work, he was trying to figure out how to use Emacs when he couldn't put one of his hands on the keyboard. And (laughs) uh, if you're familiar with Emacs, that's a lot of control, alt, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so it's, it's the same kind of thing, right? He had to, he went and bought himself a pedal for his c- computer. And so, yeah, it's, it's some of those things that you don't think about. It's not a permanent thing. A couple of weeks later, he was using the computer normally. But yeah, you don't think about it until you're in the middle of it and you're going, 
wow, this is hard because this isn't set up for somebody in my situation. Right. Absolutely. Also, I, I hope your friend is in, is like in therapy <laughs> or is getting some kind of help. Because I, I think it, I think it might not have been about the meeting. I think that, that person might have some other stuff going on. I'm sorry. This particular person is an extreme personality. I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> is is this really about a friend, Chuck? <laughs> <laughs> is this because the, the podcast went long the other week? <laughs> nope, I got both my elbows. See, you guys can see my video. Anyway, I, I also want to just call something out, else out that Maria pointed out, and that was that sometimes it's also, we're talking about situations where the bandwidth is low or people are in a situation where they don't necessarily have a disability, but it's something else about the situation, right? And so just making the website more accessible means that they have a better experience overall, even though they're using it normally, they're just using it on a different device than they normally use. Or, you know, like I said, under bandwidth constraint conditions or things like that. And, and all of this kind of comes into, okay, so how do we start to approach this big problem since there are so many angles to it? Right. So yes, that brings a really good point. So I think responsive design is really, really important. So always like go mobile first um, so that it works on all devices and then scale up. And also you can implement service workers to take care of um, the connectivity issues that users might have, making the application more accessible. So do you think accessibility kind of encompasses responsive design and people with bad connections to the internet, like you know, third world countries or I don't know, just countries that have bad connection to the internet. Would you like lump that in there a little bit or is it just tangentially related? I would definitely say that it's connected directly to this because when you look at even the definition of web accessibility, it's like making sure that everyone has the same experience with this application or the web. So that definitely counts everyone in there. You know, at the organization, and I've worked at a few organizations that really have accessibility is like the last thing in our checkbox when we're creating new products or, <laughs> and it's sad, but I think, yeah, bringing more awareness to it or having an advocate in your team that says, Hey, this needs to be done. I think that's important too. Um, usually, I mean, it's, it's sort of the things where, okay, we got the feature working or we got this product working, but okay, now do we, do we add accessibility and now do we go back and add all the tags and do we know someone that knows how to do that correctly? That That's kind of how I felt in some of my projects. And it's too bad. I think maybe if we had thought at the beginning, it would have been a more put into it. I, I think people nowadays, most companies think, you know, responsive design from the start. I think that that's the least good. I mean, most companies are like, you know, we have, we know that mobile users are going to use it. We know people who have iPads are going to use it. Let's start with that design in our idea. Let's Let's make sure we have solid design principles, but I think accessibility in a lot of organizations isn't quite as important on the hierarchy. Yeah. And I feel like more and more users are just going, are using their phones for everything, accessing everything on their phone. So it's super important that we like start off that way. And then, you know, scaling up is always easier than trying to like, you know, put all the functionality that we've added on a desktop view into like this tiny little screen which is just so hard. And also another thing to start off with is like when you're thinking accessibility as you're starting off, even in the design process, it's really important because you can look at projects that have been out for a while or like are just getting to the development phase. And then you look at the mock-ups and it's like, well, none of these colors work. Like there's the contrast is all wrong. Like we can't 
you know, see this, like people with um, visual impairments might not be able to see this the right way. So yes, it's accessibility is definitely something that starts at the very beginning of the process for, for any project. Well, it's definitely easier to get in at the beginning of the project <laughs> because what I typically see is what Eric's saying, right? People go back in and they're like, oh, I have to add all these ARIA roles and all these other things to it. And oh, it doesn't, you know, it looks terrible on this kind of phone or they run into somebody who's trying to use a screen reader on it and it's just, you know, a horrendous experience. And that's when they start thinking about it instead of, yeah, just building it in from the beginning and then it, oh, okay, this, you know, it's, it's a good experience mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, and also um, if you're building your app, you know, using like good semantics, like a lot of the stuff will kind of take care of itself because um, that will kind of have like, built-in behaviors that you want. So for example, instead of like making custom buttons, like creating a div and then adding functionality to it, just use a button and then restyle it. And then that also comes um, handy with like landmarks, which um, screen readers will use to navigate the site in like, it's kind of like a table of content, you know, that um, screen readers will kind of navigate to certain parts as well as like a good heading structure. So you should only be having like one H1 and then under that H2s and then H3s and things like that. Um, So you really want to keep that in mind. And those are like easy tricks to use. Like even if you're not like getting fancy with the area rules and things like that, you know, you should really be using good semantics. Something I'd really love to explore more, uh, if you don't mind, Maria, is since you've worked so much with people with learning disabilities, I was wondering if beyond the like ARIA roles and semantic elements and a lot of the things that people typically think about when they think accessibility, like you mentioned animations and the specific fonts people are using. Like what are some of the the biggest problems that you've noticed for some of the people that you've worked with that that might not be obvious to people? Well, I worked with a lot of people with ha- who had um, like problems with fine motor skills. Um, so making sure that, you know, users who have um, those problems can easily press buttons on your site or things like that, that yes, that's part of accessibility. Like um, it's a known fact, but it is really important. And I've seen it been misused, I guess, in a lot of sites um, while I was in the field. And it's just, it's really hard because it can get very frustrating trying to use an app and you just can't click the right thing, especially on like touch screens and things like that. And we also had a lot of problems with um, even devices, like finding devices that worked. So since people are on screens, like having like large enough tap areas. Right, right. Like, some people like just don't have the precision exactly. that, uh, that, that is accessible to like other people. Exactly. So imagine you're holding an iPad as it shakes and you're trying to touch this one button and it's surrounded by like five other buttons. And it's just, it's really hard to be that okay. precise when you just don't have the ability to do that. You know, just to bring this, I mean, I've seen people with just extra big fingers. I've seen amputees try and use phones and and tap. And yeah, you know, it's a different story than if it's a big screen and a small finger. Mm -hmm. And I noticed like a lot of sites don't even let me zoom. So if I wanted to get like really close in on that link to try to make that bigger, so that I can, you know, click on that and, you know, make sure I don't click on the, the five other links next to it. Sometimes that's not even possible. Yeah, um, I especially saw this with like drop down menus and things like that, where there's not much space in between the options. So it's just like this tiny little definition between one and the other one. 
So yeah, things like that. I just saw a tweet the other day where it was like, like someone mentioned, Hey, I went to this, I went to this site. I'm not going to name that the site. And it was just a scaled down version of the desktop. And he's like, I'm fine with that. And I'm thinking maybe you're fine with it, but that's terrible for accessibility because now people have to try to zoom in to certain places and probably doesn't work as right. Hopefully that's not a trend that some places are doing. And then scrolling around left and right to find what you need. <laughs> right. I'd love to put this in, in some perspective for folks. I think we all agree that, uh, and we've all seemed to have experiences working with sites that needed to be accessible. But to put it in perspective, Maria, do you know, like, if somebody was trying to make a business case for doing this, and their business just wasn't interested, right? Because we all have deadlines and budgets we have to meet, etc. You're trying to make the case that, yeah, this site needs to allow the images to zoom and need to have better uh, touch areas for the app so can, people can touch it when they're on precision and screen reasoning to work with it. Do you have an idea of like what kind of an audience your business might be cutting out? Is it 10%, 20%? Are there any, is there a place we can go to send people to look at the stats to help them with that? Yes, there's a couple of places that do keep stats for that. And it is, it is a growing number. So I think it's like um, over 1 billion people have some sort of disability. And of course we have like a growing elderly population, which will experience like visual loss and things like that. So we are like, we are losing on a lot of business by just discarding accessibility. And not only that, but like you will actually increase your SEO searches by um, making your site accessible. I think, I think that's good because we all have great intentions, but I know I've been, I've been the person in the room at times who had to convince business leaders to make this decision. Uh, and ultimately, unfortunately, I guess in a lot of cases, uh, they only are motivated by money. So being able to quantify that in a way that they understand it can relate, I think that's, it is what it is, but having resources like that is important. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So Have what you- is kind of the easy first step on this? Let's say that I'm either starting a new site or maybe I have something that's well established and, you know, we make the case, we get the buy-in. What's kind of the next step? And, and I guess the other question is, is are there tools in view that make this easy or easier, easy-ish? <laughs> so what I really liked about Vue is that you can kind of bind certain things to like everything. And I've, um, especially when you can loop through elements and then you can set even like for like ARIA labels and things like that, you could just set a label in your data and then just loop through it and then it'll just be added <laughs> like a miracle. <laughs> and it's great. Um, so yes, when, when you're starting off a new project or something, like you really want to, like I said, start with the design and then uh, mobile first and think about if your team can do so, um, do offline first as well. And then move into that. Now, I think we're, we're, 
where it's a problem is a, a, a project that's huge and it's already been like worked on so much going back and adding all of this, like you said, like just adding area roles can be very difficult. So just going back and making sure that you're using semantic HTML can solve a lot of the problems and then adding like aria roles to things that um, to add more functionality to things that can change. Something I, I really like in Vue too is creating like base components really early and uh, as often as possible. So for example, if you have like a, a base input component, you know, with a, you know, some kind of like fancy label that you know, you, you you click on it and then it like zooms out and then shows above it, uh, you know, where it was previously showing up like a placeholder. Like a lot of people, you know, want like these fancy inputs like this. And sometimes you have text that like isn't in a label, but is visible to the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like not only trying to be semantic wherever you can, but in cases where, you know, you do need some kind of label uh, or you do need some kind of title, adding ARIA attributes to those elements so that the same text that shows up, you know, as a label or a title or something like that also is rendered into the ARIA attribute automatically makes it so that like for individual concerns like inputs, sometimes you can, you can think about like most of the accessibility once and then get like 80% of the way there, or or maybe not quite 80% of the way there, but, but at least a good chunk of it so that the amount of stuff that you have to do you know, in retrospect, when you're doing tests, you know, to see like, okay, so if we're gonna, if we're going to access this site without a keyboard, is everything accessible? Is everything focusable? Is everything semantic? And and using screen readers and stuff like that. Having a, a lot of tiny components where you can reuse this work is, is really helpful. Yeah, I like the idea of uh, linting as well, having some tools that just lint for you. I know like, I think it's create React app last time I ran it, it was identifying for me different areas of the app that I needed to have more accessible aspects. And it didn't just tell me, hey, you didn't do it right. It actually suggested what I should yeah, do. John, do you happen to remember the, the name of the, the ESLint plugin that that scanned for those things that Create React App was using? I don't, but I know who made it. A uh, woman's name, or at least one of the people who contributed, was uh, Jen Luker, L-U-K-E-R. And she had a heavy hand in, and, uh, or not a heavy hand, she had a big hand in creating this, uh, <laughs> this ESLint tool. And I think it was something like ESLint-A11Y-something. Uh, I forget the exact name of it. We can look it up in the show notes. But Yeah, that sounds great. It was, it was really nice. I'll definitely take a look at that. <laughs> yeah, ESLint plugin-JSX-A11Y. Cool. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> for audio listeners. I'm not near keyboard. Most of our listeners are audio listeners, I think. For our audio listeners that aren't near the computer. <laughs> All right, that right. was awesome. <laughs> Although Chuck said one day we might do video. Podcast in mime. I'm working on it. Probably in the next few months we'll do video. I'd like to, I'd like to see Chuck mime the oh, whole. Wait, so you're saying people have not been able to see my incredible mime work this entire time? <laughs> Why has no one oh, said anything? But to be honest, I mean, for transcripts too, right? So people who may have audio yeah. issues maybe want to read yeah. transcripts. So, yeah. I find the transcripts really helpful a lot of times. Like there may be something that I, I heard in a podcast and I don't remember exactly when it was, but I remember they they talked about this certain thing and I don't want to go and like re-listen to the whole thing. And so I'll go and Google a transcript and yeah. I can find the the resource that I was looking for that that wasn't in a show notes or the conversation. And that's incredibly helpful, uh, you know, not just from a perspective of like being able to consume the content at all, but like 
improving the accessibility of your podcast in that way can make it like more usable for everyone in a variety of ways. Yeah, that's yeah, a really we, good point. We used to do transcripts for all the shows and then we had some things happen and it became cost prohibitive, so we stopped. But that is something that I would like to start doing again. And yeah, that, really that, funny is, that is tough. You have to pay someone to do the transcript at this point. Yeah. We, we can't do it automatically. But there are a lot of people who really liked them. And it wasn't always, yeah, as Chris pointed out, you know, sometimes it was just because you kind of got a full text search if you were on the page. And for other people, it was, I had a number of people that basically said it was the only way they could consume it just because they had something that made it hard for them to consume the audio alone. So like maybe they were in a meeting that was going really long and it wasn't appropriate to listen to something. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> But, you know, other people, they actually did have some audio disability where certain frequencies they just couldn't pick up. And so they couldn't hear some of the posts and things. Yeah. Even um, when you're watching videos to have like the little like captions is very helpful. Like not necessarily like say that you're in a loud space, like you said, like it's not a temporary, like it's a temporary thing. Yep. Yeah, I can't remember who said this, but uh, it makes a lot of sense. Like, ability is temporary. <laughs> yes. Like, no one is going to have all abilities at all times in their life un unless they live a very short, unfortunate life. <laughs> I like it. Short, unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But if people wouldn't mind, there's something else that I'd, I'd really love to talk to Maria about uh, beyond accessibility. But if, if people have more accessibility stuff they'd like to, to talk about, I want to make sure they get a chance. No, I think it's a fascinating subject. Uh, I, I think we covered a lot there. Yeah. Unfortunately, at least in my case, I would like to go work on a website and do more with it and then have the conversation about it because then I could drill in and say, you know, this area, these details, I, you know, I, I don't understand as well, but I'm only qualified to speak of it in general terms. But yeah, I, I think there's enough there to really get people rolling. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear what people's experience is. You know, once you all get into the place where you're adding these features and being a little bit more mindful of these, some of these things and saying, oh, yeah, we ran into this one thing and it turned out that it was easy or hard to solve in this way. And then we can kind of see where things go from there. But yeah, I don't have anything else to add as far as the conversation on accessibility. Other than the plea for if, if you've done this and you, you've had some experience, I'd love to hear about it. Oh, I, one other thing I would say is that there is a few. I just Googled view and accessibility, and I guess there's a few plugins like view announcer that helps with screen readers. I've never used that. I don't know if, if there's a, there probably is a few more out there, too. I don't know about view announcer. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I saw it the other day, but I haven't really started to play around with it. Yeah, simple way with Vue to announce any useful information for screen readers. Looks like it's about a year old. So, All right, Chris, what, what else do we want to talk about? So Maria is in the position that uh, a lot of people are in and, and have been in, in that, Maria, you had a career that was not web development, and then you decided to get into web development. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of people find that really intimidating uh, and, and really struggle with the transition. So I'd be really curious to hear about the, the things that you've done and what you found helpful in making that transition to become a web developer. Sure. So I guess I can talk a little bit about like story that led me to change <laughs> fields. Um, so in 2000, December of 2017, um, I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease that affects um, my body, particularly my muscles. 
So it made it really difficult for me to continue the work I was doing as a behavior analyst. I was even bedridden for a little bit. And even though my muscles were giving up on me, um, I knew that I could still learn. So I decided to teach my learn myself to code, um, even if I couldn't get out of bed, right? So I did that. And it really gave me a purpose. There are so many, so many learning resources. And I actually applied to a scholarship to do a program um, with Udacity, um, which was sponsored by Google. And that program started January 2018. And that program was actually, um, it actually really motivated me to become um, active in the community. And it actually led to the formation of a group called Developers at RTP. So how that got started is through this program, they wanted people to kind of be part of the community and be really involved. And I started just looking for people who were enrolled in that program. Um, So I just stalked other students and saw anyone who mentioned North Carolina and then just try to find the people. And then through that, I found a couple of awesome people. And then I enrolled in another program and I also stalked everybody and did the same thing. And then slowly my, you know, group of of students kind of kept growing. And then um, I, I, in January, I started doing um, weekly study sessions. And then we started working on like projects and things like that, just to kind of teach ourselves um, a lot of the tools. And then um, we also started tracking other technical meetups in the area and conferences. And we actually go and attend those as a group. So that, you know, sometimes it's very overwhelming as a new developer. You look at this big event and you're like, you know, I I really don't feel comfortable. I'm not good enough. I I can't go to this conference and not know anything. But it was very nice to feel like, you know, yes, I might not know everything, but I'm learning. And I have a group of people that are just in the same position and we're learning together. And it, it was very nice. Since that, the group has kind of slowly grown as we meet people in meetup events and things like that. Um, so we've just been growing and we're actually hosting our own meetup events now, doing technical talks and workshops, and we're actually working on a few community projects as well. We have a pretty active Slack group um, where we share resources and that's how we track all of the local events and we um, do networking events and really collaborate together. Even when you're an experienced developer, I, I find it so much easier to go to events when you know people. Right. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll still, it's like, oh, there's someone I know. <laughs> I'm alone. It's always like less, less awkward and you always feel like a little bit more like you belong, even if you're with one other person who also doesn't know anyone. Right, right. Who, who comes to these events? Is it mostly women or is it a mix of everybody? No, it's mixed everybody. Though we do have a very diverse group. <laughs> Very cool. And is it then it's like monthly, I'm guessing? Um, so we still meet weekly um, for study sessions. So we do them every Tuesday. So we had one last night. And during the study sessions, we work on our classes that we're doing. We're still um, each of us, you know, that's kind of how some of us uh, met was through the online courses. And we're still doing online courses and, you know, working on our meetup events or, you know, the projects that we're doing and things like that. So, so you're all working independently, like wherever you happen to be in the courses that you're working on. And then like when you get stuck or, you know, you've, you need help, do, do you reach out or like when, when you want to show someone so, like something cool that you built? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really cool because 
not all of us are like front-end developers. We have um, designers, data scientists, back-end developers. So it's really cool because sometimes we'll be like, you know, I'm doing this and I really don't understand. There's always someone at the table that has some sort of input for you. And they might not know exactly what technology you're working with, but they have you know, enough experience to say like, oh, I've seen another developer do this in my company or my field or, you know, so it's really interesting, especially, you know, when you see like, hey, I'm a front-end developer. Is is this thing possible as a back-end developer? And it's like, yeah, yeah, you could do it like this. And and it's just like really good um, kind of working together from many different views. And it's awesome. Gosh, that, that's so helpful. Like I remember... In learning new things, like there are sometimes when I'm stuck for weeks, like when I don't have a community, because I, I just don't even know what the right question to ask is. Or sometimes I think I know and it, I'm wrong. <laughs> so having other people there to like, you know, bounce my problems off of, I, I think is, is so useful and doesn't, they don't have to be experts. Like they don't have to be mentors. Like we can be mentors to each other. I think that's, that's a great idea. Right. And that's something that, um, that, that, that I feel like I've come to realize that not everybody knows everything, right? So you just have to accept things that you don't know and reach out. Like someone who, quote unquote, is less experienced than me might have the perfect solution because of what they've like found online. You know what I mean? So there's no such thing as like better, you know, like I'm so much better than somebody else. It's like we just have different experiences and we could just help each other out through our differences. Well, you say, you know, what they found online. But one other thing is, is that I found that a lot of times newer people have the solution because they haven't been tainted by the same best practices that I've been taught over the last, quote unquote, 12 years, <laughs> right? Well, quote unquote, you know, they, they may have been the best practice at some point, you know, it may have been the best way to go, but things evolve and there's some new idea out there that I just didn't think of or didn't get exposed to. Mm-hmm. How did you do the like the logistics of like where you guys got the place? How did you like advertise to get more people or was it completely word of mouth? Um, yeah. So I'm going to say for the first like 10 months, it was just word of mouth. And then as we attended um, other local technical events together, people would see us as a group like, hey, how do you guys know each other? Like at the beginning, it was a lot of like, hey, what's your name? Do you want to come to our group? And then we got so big that people kept approaching us when we would go to events where it just kind of grew by itself. And then it got to a point where it was like, okay, we are so big, you know, we are going to do like a meetup group where we can maybe like open it up a little bit more to the public. So people, we had, we had a lot of interest and nowhere to like say, Hey guys, we're, we could do this one, like more like legit event where we're all going to learn this together. So that that's been really nice. And yeah, um, my company's actually sponsoring um, the events. So they provide the location and the food for the events, which has been amazing. Yeah. Nice. That's yeah. I've, I've been to a lot of tech events here in Reno. We're kind of a smaller community here. And it's a lot of, uh, there's only like one or two co-working spaces. And sometimes we've, I've had to work with those guys to get us um, events, or at least these tech groups will meet up at the different co-working spaces, but they usually have a member in them. I've seen some groups meet up at libraries, uh, which is not ideal, especially some of our libraries have homeless people in them, which is fine, but it's kind of distracting when you're trying to do stuff and there's a table full of, of homeless people. But I'm glad you guys were able to find a good place and get a good rhythm going and get people coming. That's usually the hardest part is just getting people to, to show up. Um, but it sounds like you guys are really close and willing to help each other. Yeah. So when we first started, it was like, 
three of us in January and we would just meet at like a Starbucks inside Barnes and Noble. And then, you know, as the group kind of kept growing, we we're like, we, we don't fit here or we're being too loud. So then we had to move to like an actual Starbucks and then we got too big for that. And then we we're like, okay, well now we're meeting at a Panera for, for our study sessions, you know? So this weekly study sessions, and, and this is one of the things that I'm like, oh, I, I'm not sure to put it on meetup yet because I don't want it to get too big. So this one is more like for the people who are in our Slack group, um, they have access to the location and things like that. So if somebody so, wanted to set up a community like this in their area, what would you recommend that they do? Because you worked off of these courses. If somebody's not taking courses or things like that, what, you know, how do you start doing this? I mean, I would even recommend you show up to a technical meetup in the area and approach someone <laughs> as overwhelming as that can be for some people. I know I used to hate approaching people that, that like, it still makes me like a little fearful to just go and ask someone for their name. But I found that really important. Like, and, and I always feel that if you're not a little bit uncomfortable, you're not growing, you know? Um, so just ask someone and ask them if they're interested in going to the next event and, and then see who else can join you for the next event. And, and yeah, just form a community like that. Just like you, just like you want it, like there will be someone in that audience that also would love to go to a conference together, you know, or like this type of events together. Yeah. Well, and I can tell you that at least a lot of the meetups out here, that's generally how they start. So there's a JavaScript meetup, and then, you know, some new system or something comes along or a bunch of people realize they all have in, an interest in the same database or in functional programming or something. And so they all start chatting and they say, you know what, they're not doing enough functional programming chat uh, talks here. And so then they form their own. And so, yeah, that, that is a really, really common way to go. So it, it sounds like a, a big piece of advice is to just reach out and make it happen, <laughs> like create the <laughs> that you're looking for. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You got to put yourself out there. And I, I think that's pretty much how you got involved in, uh, in View Vixens as well, right? I, I think yes. you, you went to a workshop and then you just reached out. You started talking to people and he's like, how could we like do a View Vixens here? Is, is that pretty much how it went? Yeah, actually. So I talked to Jen Looper. So after the workshop, I just kind of went ahead and introduced myself, which again is something that I, like in my previous field, I had never approached someone to just introduce myself. You know, now I just feel like I should. Um, so I just introduced myself and she's like, oh, um, you, you're local. You know, we're really looking for someone to start a chapter in North Carolina. I'm like, hey, you know, I have a really good community of developers who would love to like learn about this technology. So um, she's like, awesome. So we kind of paired up on that. And what's different between like the View Vixens meetups and the other meetups you go to and the, the, the weekly ones? Well, so the weekly meetups are more like um, like study sessions. That's what I call them. Um, so we just kind of, it's more like informal. You know, we just go, everybody's on their laptop, you know, doing their own thing. We might reach out. Whereas uh, the View Vixens events are like when, when I post 